Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him dependently in prayer. Our gracious God in heaven, you are source of all light. And by your word, you have given light to the soul. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you in holy scripture, that our hearts and our minds may be open to you, to know the things that pertain to life and godliness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a series of questions for, to get you thinking, to get you thinking about what we're looking at in this passage today. And I want to begin with this question. If God chose Israel through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be his people, why did they reject the Messiah whom God had promised and sent? As you're thinking about that, Think about this. Did, did God not reveal His glory to them on Mount Sinai, in the tabernacle, and in the temple? Did He not make His dwelling among them? Did God not choose Israel to receive His covenants, but to also receive His law, to worship Him in spirit, or rather in truth? Now, it would seem, it would seem that Israel's rejection of Christ renders God's redemptive plan a failure. God chose Israel 
But they rejected Christ. Mission failed. From a humor perspective, that is captive to time and space and ensnared by fleshly influence, we might we might even assume that the gospel to the Gentiles was a divine reaction to Israel's rejection. Kind of like a, a spurned lover's rebound. But God, to be clear, is neither captive to time nor space, nor does he contend with a sinful nature. He is holy. His purpose is never, to be clear, his purpose is never thwarted. His plans never fail. As God said through Isaiah, listen closely, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And so to a certain extent we can remove failure from our vocabulary when referring to God, right? Connecting God's purpose with what he has spoken then in his holy word. Paul reminds us here in this very first verse that I read. It is not as though the word of God has failed. It has not. It cannot. Why then did Israel as a whole reject Christ? Well, search as you may, the answer is not going to be found in Israel's history, but it is hidden, in a sense, in God's purpose. What He purposes prevails. But that doesn't mean it is always clear to us, does it? Perhaps the question to ask is what was the manifest purpose in Israel? What was God's manifest purpose in Israel? And so that's where I want to begin today in this passage. Paul makes a seemingly confusing statement, doesn't he, here in verse 6? He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Say what? Look at it again. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Which should lead us to ask the question, well then who's Israel? Are there more than one? Well, in short, Paul will explain, in a sense, yes. But you must pay careful attention to the context of this passage to understand the difference that Paul is making here. As we will see in the upcoming passages, and as I'm going to preach in upcoming sermons, Paul distinguishes between a natural Israel and a spiritual Israel. The distinction between a natural Israel and a spiritual Israel. Not all who are descended from natural Israel belong to spiritual Israel. Natural Israel consisted of whom? Consisted of the descendants of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the heir of Abraham. God changed Jacob's name to, to Israel. That's right. And one became many. Israel became, well, Israel became a nation. They were God's chosen people through whom Christ came. 
The confusion arises, and thus Paul's distinction here is when the Israelites themselves presumed that salvation came by virtue of their ethnic descent. In a sense, they thought that ethnic descent was more important than devotion. That ancestral favor was more important than faith. So Paul makes the distinction between the natural and the spiritual. Not every Israel Israelite would be saved. Now to help us understand this, Paul takes us all the way back to Abraham, doesn't he? Whom God chose, whom God called, whom God promised blessing upon his offspring. Or the Greek literally there means his seed. And that seed in and through Isaac, his son. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, I will establish my covenant with Isaac as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And though Ishmael was the natural son of Abraham, it was through Isaac that God chose to fulfill his promise, revealing that God's purpose is not in biological descent, but in promise. The promise is the point. This means, Paul says in verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but whom? Paul goes on to say, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, just as the natural Israel is not of spiritual Israel, not so all of Abraham's natural children are of his spiritual children. What's the point? The point is the same in these two examples. Salvation is not by natural descent. Now, if God did not save every Israelite, then what was his purpose? What was his purpose in Israel? As God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and this is important, God promised Abraham, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so he fulfilled through Israel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Through Isaiah, think about it this way. Through Isaiah, God told Israel, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And through Israel came Jesus, the light of the world. God's manifest purpose in Israel was His promise fulfilled in Christ. To redeem spiritual Israel, Abraham's true children, from every tribe, from every tongue, and every nation. But Paul then, taking us from this example, it is as if he transitions or he ties in what he is teaching us about spiritual Israel. And then he transitions to what I'm discussing here as the mysterious purpose of election. God, according to his 
purpose. In choosing Abraham, not others. In choosing Isaac, not Ishmael. In choosing Jacob, not Esau. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Such is the mystery of God's sovereign election. As we have looked at before. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Not because of foreseen faith, or nor because of works, but because of, as Paul puts it, because of him who calls. And he who calls, effectually calls only those whom he foresaw and predestined. To emphasize this point, Paul is going to point us, uniquely enough, to Rebecca's womb. He points us to Rebecca's womb where twin boys are awaiting their birth. Though neither had yet the opportunity to do good or bad, God loved one, the other he hated. In his sovereign purpose, God had chosen Jacob, passing over Esau for no inherent reason other than, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, other than the praise of his glorious grace. In the mysterious purpose of election, what is quite clear is that God bestows mercy God bestows compassion upon whom he wills. And yet, and yet, to ears that are accustomed to the contemporary version of unconditional love, Paul's quotation from Malachi, it doesn't sound like mercy at all. In fact, it sounds merciless. It leads us to ask the question, And it's a good question. Did God really hate Esau? If God is love, and he is according to 1 John chapter 4, if God is love, then doesn't he love everyone? And if he loves everyone, how could he hate unborn Esau? Or anyone else for that matter? To help us answer these questions, I want to make a distinction. And I've added this in the outline, in the sermon notes, in your bulletin. I want to make this distinction. I want to be very careful and very clear. I want you to hear me clearly because if you don't, it will get very confusing. I want to make this distinction. The distinction between what I'm calling the universal love of God's common grace. The universal love of God's common grace and the exclusive love Of God's sovereign grace. The universal love of God's common grace. And the exclusive love of God's sovereign grace. Let me start with this first one. According to the universal love of God's common grace. Wait for it. God loved Esau. As he loves everyone whom he has created. This is the way Jesus put it. Jesus said, God makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the just, or rather on the just and the unjust. Or when Paul was preaching at Lystra, he put it this way, 
God did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And if you've read the scripture, you know Esau married, Esau had children, Esau grew incredibly wealthy. And he also, in years later, he reconciled with his brother Jacob, and he grew into a nation of his own, the nation of Edom. He enjoyed the earthly blessings of God's common grace. Created in God's image, he was, in this sense, loved. But he wasn't loved like Jacob. According to the exclusive love of God's sovereign grace, Jacob was chosen by God before the foundation of the world. That he should be holy and blameless before God. In love, God predestined Jacob exclusively for adoption to himself as a son. And God did this for no inherent reason in Jacob, but according to the purpose of of God's will to the praise of his glorious grace. And so in his sovereign mercy and grace, God loved Jacob and he loved him with an everlasting love. And so how then are we to understand the mercy of God? I mean, Paul anticipates our response in a sense, doesn't he? When he asks, is this injustice? On God's part? Or we might say, put it this way. How can this be fair? How can this be fair? It doesn't seem fair. In our sense of fairness, this just seems wrong. I mean, one might wonder it this way. Doesn't Esau get a say in the matter? Doesn't Esau, well, doesn't he get a chance to be good? I mean, doesn't Esau get an opportunity to please God? In short... Yes, in fact, we all do. In the pass or fail test of God's holiness, Esau failed. Jacob failed. You failed. Yours truly failed. Let us remember this. In Romans chapter 3, Paul makes it quite clear. None is righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And in case you have forgotten it, and I know you haven't, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. And so Esau did get his shot, as did Jacob, as did you and me. So you see, the question is not one of fairness. If that were the case, if it were a case of fairness, who would be saved? Nobody. No one. No, to understand we must look not to whether you and I or Jacob or Esau are worthy, but to God's sovereign mercy. Which Paul explains... Uniquely enough, directing us all the way back to Exodus. We were in Genesis, 
Paul then moves to a second example in Exodus. And now he's going to give us the example of Moses and Pharaoh. Yes, God sent Moses. But before God sent Moses to Pharaoh, you may remember that he told Moses this. (laughs) That I imagine could be frustrating to someone that didn't trust in the sovereignty of God. God told Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Told him that before he sent him to Pharaoh. So God sent Moses and Moses went. And yes, Moses appealed to Pharaoh for Israel's freedom. Yes, Pharaoh denied Moses' request. Of course, God didn't need to instill evil in Pharaoh's heart. It was already there. He merely gave him over to do what he desired to do. You see, Pharaoh did not want to free Israel for a myriad of reasons. But underlying them all was his hard heart. So then, Paul says in verse 16, It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. No one is saved unless God in and of himself acts in sovereign mercy. And the correlation that Paul is making here is that just as God chose Jacob over Esau, he chooses to save his elect not based on foreseen faith or nor on works, not based on natural descent or merit, but only, only because of God's mercy and his grace. God said this to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul goes on to say, And so, he has chosen to have mercy and compassion on those whom he foreknew and predestined. Rather, Paul didn't say that. I said that. Uh, Rather, because Moses said, quoting God, said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So also we may understand it, that God has chosen to have mercy, that God has chosen to have compassion on those whom he foreknew and predestined, on those whom he predestined he called. He called by his grace. And those whom he called, he justified through faith in Christ. And those whom he justified, he sanctifies, conforming us to the image of Christ. And one day, one day we will be glorified just like Christ. Such is included in the mysterious yet merciful purpose of God. It is indeed mysterious why God chose Jacob. It is incredibly mysterious why God would choose you. And you may be thinking the same. It is mysterious why God would choose me. (laughs) I don't know. I just know I don't deserve it. Nor do you. This truth should not lead to arrogance or indifference, but to humility and assurance Paul put it this way, writing to the church at Ephesus. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's mercy to us then is not an end in itself. There is greater purpose in God's mercy shown to us. What is this mysterious? What is this merciful purpose of God? Well, Paul gives us clues right here in this passage. Look at the text with me. Look at verse 11. This is important. Follow along with me. Look at verse 11. Paul first says that God chose Jacob, not Esau, in order that God's purpose might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. In other words, God does what he purposes because he's God. But there's another place I want to draw your attention to. Now go down to verse 16. Paul says that God's mercy depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, God shows mercy on whom he shows mercy because he's God. But there's one other place I want you to look. Look at verse 18. Paul concludes, God has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. In other words, God has mercy and hardens as He wills because He is God. If this sounds redundant, I'm trying to make a point. What we see in these verses and throughout Scripture is that God's ultimate purpose in all that He does is is His glory. Although our chief end may be to glorify God, God's chief end, so to speak, is to glorify Himself. For example, every time, and I've said this before, and people have had questions to me about the doctrine of God's sovereign grace. You can test me on this if you wish. Every single time you find God's sovereign election in Scripture. It is not given to tell us whether or not our neighbor is of the elect or not. Never. In fact, every single time that you find sovereign election in Scripture, do you know where it leads us? You do, don't you? It leads us to behold our God in awe and reverence. We read of God's sovereign election and it makes us want to fall on the ground and cry out, Oh God, why me? We're not told Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated for us to speculate whether our neighbor is of the elect. We are not told that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that He predestined us in adoption for us to treat the lost and the perishing with smug indifference. No. God chose us. He predestined us according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. And so when we consider the manifest purpose of Israel, 
When we consider the mysterious purpose of election. When we consider the merciful purpose of God. What can we say? We can just fast forward right to the end of chapter 11. We can say with Paul. Oh the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. Beloved. Behold our God, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. And let us all say, Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank You for Your Word and its truth. We ask that You would forgive us for not treating the difficult doctrines of Scripture With reverence and awe. We ask that you would forgive us. For looking to your word. As if it would lead us to smug indifference. Regarding our neighbor. We pray. Oh God we pray. May we see what is clearly declared in your word. And may it lead us to worship you. As we cry out why me. So let us also cry out, praise God, for all glory is due you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.